The book of Romans, chapter 2, I'll read verses 1 through 5. Now, I want you to remember, uh, as I preach from Romans 1, verses 18 through 32, over a course of sermons, of course, the kinds of people that we see all around us who are wearing the black hat, as it were, they are clearly uh, wicked and immoral. They are given over. They are debased. Then there is another kind of person that Paul introduces us to. The kinds of people who know the other kinds of people exist and they can point where in the law of God they go wrong. They who judge by a standard that may be right, but in their judging endeavor to be made righteous by their own intellect and self-righteousness. Romans chapter 2, I'll begin reading in verse 1. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day, I'm sorry, treasuring up wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Thus far, the reading of God's words, you may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of God's word. Lord, our desire this morning is that we might be broken even over our sins, that we might not cling to our own self-righteousness as something that might be presented to you in the day of judgment, that you will count righteous and so we acquitted. Lord, our longing is that we might judge according to the truth, not only others, but ourselves. And that finding at the end of that judgment, guilty, guilty apart from faith, guilty apart from the just shall live by faith, whatever doctrine or element of our lives that we cling to is a matter of self-righteousness. Lord, lay those things low at the foot of your cross. This we ask in your name. Amen. I want to begin with a brief anecdote of my time when I was studying the book Hebrews to Revelation under the tutelage of Dr. Mike Kruger, who is a a professor at RTS in Charlotte. And I think I've told this before, and I apologize if I have. I've been told by various sources that all concur that I'm doing what my dad does now, and that's tell the same stories over and over again. Everyone in my family is nodding yes right now. And so uh, I don't want this to appear like a soapbox, but it was impactful for me. Uh, the question was put to the professor, are we living in an age that is categorically more modern or postmodern? Now, as it relates to those two philosophical commitments, modernity is the idea 
that through human rationality and reason, just by thinking things clearly through, we can arrive at the truth. These are both bad, by the way. They're both built upon sort of the enlightenment and biblical higher criticism that came to us by way of a German higher criticism. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Postmodernism is the child of modernity, and what postmodernity says is <clears throat> there is no singular truth that men can arrive to through rationalism and the scientific method. Everyone has their own truth. And the question was, which age are we living in? And he said, both, in this way. Every age has always thought in this way. As it, re as it relates to our applying the law to someone else, we think that there is a moral absolute. And they're not doing it. Susie did X. <clears throat> as it relates to postmodernity, we say, well, as it relates to the law's relationship to me, eh, I get to decide. Do you understand? This is how all men think. And in fact, Paul is applying this kind of um, childish, secular, natural way of thinking as it relates to our relationship to the revealed wrath of God and his law. Here in Romans chapter 2, Paul continues to cover this wide series of laying low all kinds of people under the weight of God's wrath if they seek to escape that wrath by any other way than justification by faith, than the grace of God. And so in the second part of chapter 1, Paul says, there are those kinds of people, you know the kinds of people, the kinds of people who walk in the pride parade, and they say, this is who we are. They're proud of their sin, and God has given them over to a debased mind. And those people are easy to pick out of a crowd, right? They're very clearly easy to pick out of a crowd, and they're becoming louder and prouder every year. But then there are those who are also proud, but the way in which they manifest their pride is by clearly saying, hey, at least we can all agree those guys are really, really bad. If you're familiar with the, the sort of modern parlance of the age, you have your black pills. Those are the pessimists as it relates to the age. There are your white pills, and those are the optimistic. They say, look, things are bad right now, but in light of Christ's kingdom, boy, oh boy, it could be a lot worse, and God has promised us it will get better. And then there are the, black, uh, the red pills. And the red pills are those who basically sit from this position of soft conservancy, and they say, those guys are bad. Don't be like those guys. But they have nothing to offer except critique. And the kinds of critiques that they make are dead ends. There's no fruit there. None whatsoever. Now, Paul here turns his guns, as it were, theologically speaking, on those types of people. These three points I want to make this morning. The judgment of the unjust, that is the judgment that belongs to the unjust. The judgment of the only justifier... 
And then thirdly, lastly, where true judgment leads. The judgment of the unjust, the judgment of the only justifier, and then where true judgment leads. Let's look at the first point, the judgment of the unjust. That's what Paul calls it. Therefore, you are inexcusable. No, you are not excused. Oh, man, whoever you are who some Bibles say condemn or accuse. It is not righteous judgment here that Paul has in mind. It is unjust judgment. For in whatever you judge, that is people, moralities, systems, behaviors, whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. Why? For you who judge practice the same things. This is what Paul means by you are not excused. Paul is talking not about righteous judgment or righteous people. He is talking about the unrighteous who suppress and exchange the truth of God, not by throwing off the law, but by building up the law. Think Pharisaism. Think hypocrisy. In fact, if there is a parable that ever describes what is happening in Romans chapter 2, you probably have already thought it already. It is the story of the prodigal son. Paul is looking right at the younger brother, older brother, the older brother, and he's pointing his finger in his face saying, this is you, buddy. You are the older brother. This is what Paul is writing. Against those who are incapable of delighting in mercy or understanding that there is forgiveness of sins because their position of moral superiority is At least I'm not like that guy. This is uniquely true for many in the church, right? At least I'm not like those guys. And this is particularly a problem for those who don't despise the law. But what they do with the law is they choose the things they want to obey that they can obey. They disregard the things that they don't think are important. And they're doing the actual exact same thing that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1 verses 18 through 32. They are making a law for themselves. They're just using a little bit more of God's law than others might. Here is the problem. Which commandments... Of God's holy law, is he willing to excuse you of if you've done other portions of his law really well? That is the heart of works righteousness. By these things I will be counted righteous. These things are not so important. And then to top it all off, saying, I am righteous because these things I've done well. In one such confrontation, Jesus confronts the Pharisees that they actually tithe on the herb garden, but then they refuse to care for the physical needs of their own parents. Look at what I'm, why are they doing that? Because people can see you tithe. And so when Christ says, if you're going to give, don't shout it out in the street. Don't be like the Pharisee who walks into the temple and says, Lord, Lord, I'm so grateful I'm not like the tax collector over here. And then the tax collector bows himself before God and says, I am a worthless worm. Which man is more righteous? The one whose sins are forgiven. And when you understand the gospel, 
that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, that no man has an advantage before another at the foot of the cross of Christ. And when you understand that, and your only plea is not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul, but only Christ's hands scarred, his side stabbed, his death has purchased my redemption. Until you can come to the truth, All you are left with is lies, lies, and more lies. And you lie to yourself all the time. It is the judgment, or it is a judgment that is built upon a house of lies. And so Paul calls these prideful men inexcusable. They have not been excused. Children, think of it this way. How many times in your life Have you told on your siblings? Happens all the time in our house. To what end? Why? What is the goal? Is it so that your brother or sister may be healed through repentance? No. But dad, I'm just concerned for the eternal state of their soul. And your dad goes, have you heard a sermon on Romans chapter 2 verses 1 through 5? You inexcusable young man. What are they doing? We do this too, right? We run to the HR department, or at least some do. We see that too happening. Maybe not y'all. Someone does. They said a no-no word, right? You can't say those words now. Or someone does something, kids, in your house, and you go to your mom and say, Timmy did this. Five minutes later, what are you doing? Hoping that someone doesn't tell on you for the exact same thing you just told on someone else for. Judgment is, it's nuclear in that it must be handled carefully. And if it is to be handled carefully, it must be handled according to the standard that was given to us by God's word. And so let's say in the church, for instance, when there is someone who is found to be living outside of and contrary in unrepentance to the law of God, it does not mean the session says, well, God tells us not to judge. Well, there you go. Parents, you do this all the time in your home. But by what standard? It is not as though there is not a standard. Paul is talking to those whose standard is protean. That means it changes. And it changes according to what? Whatever suits their desires. And the irony is rich, is it not? Especially when you have the combination of a Romans 1 person and a Romans 2 person. Right? These are the people that say there is no standard by which all men might live. There is no divine law. But there are social constructs of those laws. And if you break those laws, you're in trouble. And every 15 years or less, they change, don't they? It's because the judgments are built upon lies. That is the standard. And the reason why judgment is built upon lies is because the truth is harder than our lies. It is because the truth of God's word lays us low. It is an end to our pride And for the same reason in Romans 1 that men refuse to worship God but instead suppress 
and then exchange the truth of God for another law. And because of that, God has given them over to a debased mind. Romans chapter 2 is still debased mind thinking. Because if I have to admit what is true of myself, I have to repent. It means I'm sinful. All of these things play out around us all the time. Again, we go back to the home when parents confront a child for something they did wrong. No, I didn't. Uh Uh-huh. That was somebody else. Or let's just say that's not a problem is what they're saying. You did X. I didn't do that. Or what's the big deal? The shrugging of the shoulders? Whatever. At least I'm not like him. At least I'm not like my brother. See, my brother left two towels on the bathroom floor. I only left one. Right? By what standard? Our standard is no towels on the bathroom floor. You're both guilty. And then the third somebody's going, I left five towels on the floor. If that is the game we are going to play, guess what happens? All judgments of men, all judgments of men end in one way. Death for everyone. I mean, you've seen the showdown, right, at the OK Corral? Two men standing in the street. This is what you call a a large standoff, where everyone's got guns pointed at everybody else, right? It's not just three, four. This is the way every religion works that is not built upon the religion of the Bible. Everybody's got guns pointed at everybody else because they're condemned by some standard other than the standard of Christ's righteousness. And in those standards of righteousness, guess what never gets put away? The guns. And it's not just this. Really, it's this. Right? It's the suicide, Paul says, of unjust judgment. In fact, maybe it's more like this. By the same standard you judge, you will be judged. And the tendency of the human heart is to not admit that we are broken and fallen. Instead, what do we do? We turn, right? God comes to Adam and to his wife, and he says, What have you done? And just prior to the fall, Adam looked at his wife and said, Thank you. She's not like any of the other Creatures you have made, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. But as soon as sin entered the world, Adam says, yeah, she messed it all up. And it doesn't take long after the wedding night to get to that point, does it? And then there's fighting. And you wonder, how did we get here? You were always like that. You were always like that. You were just willing to set aside your own self-righteousness for a time in the phase of courtship so that you could actually get down the aisle. And then once you've made the I do's, you go, oh, this person's threatening my pleasure, my comfort. They see things that I don't want them to see. They see that I practice one religion in public but another religion at home. Because it is easier... To admit the sin of others than it is our own sin. Because one requires repentance and the other doesn't. And in fact, what they are actually guilty of is not judgment, but accusation. And where do all accusations come from? 
from hell itself. It is the fork-tongued judgment of the devil. Because what is an accusation? It is some of, but not all of the facts of God's revealed will. The devil loves to tell part of the truth, but not the whole truth. In fact, if he came to all of us and told us a full-faced, bald-faced lie, we'd say, yeah, I don't believe that for a minute. But if he comes with just enough truth to whet your appetite, at least, Joby, you're not like the United Methodists, right? Don't we think that? Yeah. At least you're not like the guys on the left, you know, the ones in blue. Or at least you're not like X. I feel pretty good about myself. I can sleep at night knowing that there are people out there in this world that are more sinful than me. And that may be true as it relates to the practice of actual sin. Or at least the performance. Or what people see. But what about the heart? And our imaginations. And our desires. There is no man acquitted. There is none who is righteous. In fact, Paul will later in Romans 3 provide the theological framework for why he says what he says in Romans 1 and 2. But the fact of the matter is this. Natural man delights not in mercy. And if he cannot delight in mercy, he must delight in the law. And because he cannot delight in the law that says something about him, he must delight in the law that says something about someone else. Second point. That's the judgment of the unjust. Let's look at the judgment of the only justifier, that is God himself. There is a judgment of the only righteous one, and in contrast to what we read in the first two verses, is or the first verse, <clears throat> we know, verse 2, that the judgment of God is according to truth. And... <clears throat> It is united to richness of goodness, forbearance, long-suffering. This is the judgment of God. It is perfect, but it is not fickle. In fact, it is perfect because it is not fickle. And it is not all that God does, and it's not the only way he relates to men. He is not only judging or just in relationship to the sins of men, as we've already read in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. He is also the justifier. Of men. And so at the end of all human judgment is death. There is the open grave. There is the yawning chasm of eternal damnation. Because no judgments of men result in acquittal. But the judgment of God is first, why it is good, according to truth. Why? How is that possible? Because God is true. God is good in his being, in his wisdom. He is infinite and eternal in both of those things and in his justice. And so in contrast to the sin of bad judges is the righteousness and the goodness of judging according to the truth. Now, that does not just mean saying what is true. It is always judging according to what is true. And it doesn't mean that we don't know what is true. The degree to what we know and the way we judge is oftentimes disconnected, but not with God. And so, for all who are guilty, God says death. 
How then are any acquitted? Do you see the progress that Paul is making in the gospel and the message of salvation? All before God are pronounced guilty and deserving of death. And there is no satisfactory way to get out from underneath that condemnation by anything we do, either by ignoring it or thinking that we will be saved by our own self-righteousness and showing God where else to aim his guns. God knows it all. Which means that the fraction of sins that you have seen that I have committed is far in terms of its contrast. It's great. I have sinned in my heart far more than you have seen, certainly at church on Sunday. But God has seen every wayward thought. And in fact, when I preached from the book of Revelation, there was a series of about two weeks where I would wake up, go to bed at night going, God, don't kill me in my sleep. <laughs> and it was that section of Scripture in Revelation where Christ sits upon the throne of judgment and he opens the books. And I made a contention that I think there, there are at least two books. I think there are three. There is the book of Scripture, which is the right standard by which God judges all men. Then there is the book of our deeds, in which every single thought, action, intention, emotion that you have ever felt that is contrary to the standard is written. That's a bigger book than this book. For all of us. For you especially. No, wait. That's exactly what I'm preaching against, right? My book is big. And the longer you live, maybe this is why when you get over 100 people, like, I just want to die. What are they saying? I just want to be done with sin. I want that book to be done, being written. I want it to be written no more. And then there is the Lamb's book of life. And however big it is, it trumps the book of our sinful disease, our sinful deeds. Because the righteousness of Christ is greater than all of our sins. What Paul is talking about is this. Someone comes to you and goes, hold on. On April 1st, on April 1st, 2021, this is what you did. You did this. Remember that? And instead of closing it or throwing it away, according to the mercy of God, they just leave it sitting open all the time. Remember when you did that, sweetheart? Remember when you did that? Remember when you did that? That was seven years ago. Remember when you did that? We bring it up over and over and over. It might be true is my point. The question is what? Does it get held against us any longer? And so it is not that it is only true. The judgments of God are also there to show us the righteous requirement that is met by Christ. So that when we come to know Christ, we see the book of our deeds and we say, thank God those things are no longer held against me. And the weightiness of that volume, <laughs> tome, does not cause in us a sense of terror, but gratitude in light of what has actually been forgiven. This is the judgment that Paul is talking about. Because all the world stands condemned before God. Really, in reality, there are only one set of guns and they're all pointed at the same group of people. And God says, 
You want to be free? Come to the cross. In fact, what Paul is talking about in contrast to the judgments of the inexcused or the unexcused is the very thing that sinful men despise, verse 4. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Why don't they see it? Because they're hard and impenitent. And so instead of turning and rejoicing, they continue to stack up judgment against judgment against judgment against others and so conversely themselves. In fact, here is what God does to the accuser. And this is why it is important that you understand where the devil is right now. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. So the great dragon, that is Satan, was cast out. That serpent of old called the devil, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before God day and night has been cast out. Paul is saying that those who judge with unjust judgment will be cast out just like the devil. But there is that way, that other way, that place where, lastly, true judgment leads. When you ignore the righteous judge of all the earth, when, will you not, when you will not admit or embrace his goodness, you jettison Christ as your only hope of righteousness. And so there are those who, sensing the wrath of God in themselves and around them in creation, say, I've got to run as fast as possible and get away from that. And then there are those who say, no, I, I believe in some kind of standard, but that standard, though it may appear more righteous than the standard of those in Romans 1, verses 18 through 32, is still unrighteous. It's just Romans 1, 18 through 32 with a suit on, right? It looks good. It dresses up well. It can go to Washington. But it isn't righteousness. And so you cannot judge in your judgment and also receive and worship the one who is actually the true judge of all the earth. When Puritan went to the cross and his burden was rolled away, it's an allegory not for salvation or justification proper. It's actually an allegory for assurance. Think of the burden you carry every day. The burden of other people's sins. Or your own, for that matter. Unjustly judged. Now, in reform circles in this day and age right now, one of the things that illustrates well for us the, product, the story or the parable of the prodigal son and the older brother is how we often 
look down upon and judge those who do not make the same choices that we make according to the truth that we see. One of those things oftentimes that gets discussed right now is, did you close your doors during COVID? This is what we call the high inside fastball of close application. Stay with me. And we say, no, we didn't close our doors. We did four or five weeks, something like that. And I thought to myself, man, I, I like this job. I can preach anytime I want as long as I hit record. And I don't have to talk to anybody. <laughs> you know what they say about ministry? It's easy if it weren't for the people. Y'all heard that, right? And you probably think the same about me sometimes. That's the rub, isn't it? That's the difficulty. And we look at other churches and we say, you guys closed? Well, how long did you close? Are you still closed? What are you doing about that? Do you actually listen to government suggestions? But then what do we do? I'm not going to let the government tell me not when to go to church. But I will absent myself from church anytime there's something else. And I get to make that choice. What are you doing? You are judging according to an unjust standard. It is the standard written in your heart. And it isn't just worship. It's any kind of sin. You do X, you go seven over, I go three over. You both go over the speed limit. That's the problem. You're both going over the limit. So the cop won't pull you over till you're nine, right? We've had that discussion Nine is the place. Why? Because it just doesn't make sense for a state trooper to pull you over if it's not a big ticket. And this is how we think of the law of God. We can go up to the edge, but there's an edge in all of our hearts. I can look, but I can't touch. I can get angry at my kids, but nobody else's kids. And God is looking at us going, it's right here. And we say, well, at least we're not like people from name the city, name the party, name the group. And we, what are we doing? We're saying, Lord, we want you to judge us with the same discretion that we have. And he goes, no, you don't. You don't want me to do that. Because you know what? You would actually never know what is good and what is bad. Right? Don't we do this with our kids? Monday morning, when we're very tired, we judge by a different standard than we do on Friday night when we're with our friends and having a good time. We get mad about the wrong things. We're all kind of on edge. And what do our children learn from us? That God is not the center and the giver of law. We are. And how dare we do that? And yet we do it all the time. The point of the matter is this, that true judgment when it is rightly understood, leads us to one place, and that is the cross of Christ. Calvin speaks of the use of the law in its second use in this way. All men, when they are aware of their sins, come to the cross of Christ and go, they don't care who's standing next to them. They're not embarrassed. They look at Christ, and he's the only one in the room, and they say, I need help. The cross reveals our deep and desperate need for what is provided at the cross. 
And so we come not in a way to sort of, you know, we're 80% righteous. We need that other 20% that Christ brings us. No, we need all of it. We have zero. He has a hundred. And so true judgment here, according to Paul, reveals the forbearance and the patience and the goodness of God. How? Because God's law reveals that none of us are worthy save through Christ alone. And it also leads us away from the grave. That misuse of the law that only leads to condemnation. It teaches us not to be runabouts, leaving whenever we can, and it teaches us not to be tattletales. Now, Paul will continue to hone and sharpen that point to the, where he makes that conclusion in verses 17 through 24, that you have the Gentiles and the Jews. That's basically who he's talking about. And he's not talking about ethnicity. He's talking about in relationship to the law, you have those who have the law and those who were not given the law. And for us who have it, Listen, we are the ones who have the law. We have the gospel. And oftentimes, instead of going into the world with the law and the gospel, we lob the grenades of truth. But we do not wield it to heal. We wield it to harm. Only to condemn and not to bring about repentance. And so what are we to do instead? Stop bragging. Stop despising. But rejoice in the faith given to you by God's grace. So your first thought in worship shouldn't be, and I don't think this is for any of y'all. Man, I'm so glad I'm here and not somewhere else. Right? The Reformation, I mean, they're, they really do it so much better than this other variety. So theologically, well, I'm glad that we're trying to be theologically orthodox. We are singing literally just scripture for the most part. But even in light of scripture, oftentimes our hearts are cold. And what we're doing while we're here, it's like going to the doctor for some condition that we have, wondering if our friend actually has cancer. When the question of the day is, do you have cancer? We go to the one who promises to bring healing and security. How can we think about someone else at that time? Other than, man, these people need to hear this. We need to rejoice in the faith given by God. Not accusations derived by men. That is how we can sing in precatory psalms and be righteous in them. Because we are endeavoring to see the world judged by God's immutable, righteous standard. And so if your standard is one by which there is no room for forgiveness, then it is not a good standard. Stop accusing unjustly and start repenting. For by the same measure of judgment you judge others, you will be judged. Do not be an accuser of men but rather proclaim the true and only way of salvation. Let's pray.